Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Hello, everybody. I am recording this podcast about an hour after the U.S. stock market has closed from a holiday shortened week. Everybody got Monday off Labor Day, and I'll have a little bit more to speak about Labor Day at the end of today's podcast. But first, I want to talk about what I think was the big story for the markets, and it doesn't get as much attention as it should, because I think that most of the players in the market don't really comprehend what it means. But I've been talking about this theme on this podcast, and that is the simultaneous increase in bond yields and oil prices, which continued again this week. Now, we didn't hit new highs in bond yields, even though yields were higher, although some of the maturities on a weekly basis did close at a new weekly closing high ever since the Fed started hiking interest rates. Oil did hit a new high ever since it bottomed out in May of this year. And in fact, what's really been uh, or what really helped to bring down uh, the, the headline CPI was the big drop in oil prices. People forget that oil prices fell almost 50 percent from their peak. And that fall ended in, in May of this year. But that big decline in uh, oil prices was a major factor in bringing headline inflation from 9% to 3%. And it's not just the rate hikes that did it. I mean, they were partially responsible because the rate hikes pushed up the dollar. And the dollar going up brings oil prices down. But there was another significant factor in that 50% drop, and that was what President Biden did with the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, because an election year uh, or an election was coming, the midterm elections, and oil was headed higher. It was well over $100 a barrel. And Biden was worried that voters would take their frustration out on the incumbents. Uh, And so in order to help secure their reelection, the Democrats, and make the economy look better, Biden raided the petroleum reserve, the strategic petroleum reserve, in an unprecedented manner to the point that today the reserves are back to where they were 40 years ago. That's how low the reserves are. The U.S. population has increased by about 50% since then, 
But the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, thanks to the big sale, uh, is exactly where it was. But the real way to look at the reserve, to measure it, is how many days supply do we have? How long can we run the economy if we needed to on the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve? And right now, it's at an all-time low. We have just 20 days. So if we had no new oil, we would run out if we relied exclusively on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. In 20 days, the reserve would be completely empty. But the point I'm making is there's not much room now, given how low the reserves are. We can't really keep selling. We can't have no reserves. And we really can't let them get any lower. Meanwhile, oil prices are now up 37% since the price bottomed out a few months ago. All of that hasn't even shown up yet. It's just started. But we're going to start to see that in the, uh, in, in the CPI numbers. And also, what if we decide that we need to rebuild those reserves? That means we're going to have to start buying oil instead of selling oil. And so the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is going to be competing for oil with everybody else. So it's going to be even added pressure. Now, maybe we just decide, well, we're never going to refill those reserves. And if we do have an emergency, we will exhaust them very quickly. I think uh, the OPEC nations know that we're in a very vulnerable position, having already sold so much of our reserves, right? We're in a, a, a less secure position, and that gives them more power. But it also shows that we don't have the ability to try to manipulate oil prices down. Because remember, it was the money supply, the inflation, that was driving the prices higher because you have more money. But because we dumped all that oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, we also had more supply. So we increased the supply of oil by tapping into the strategic reserve. But that was unnatural because we can't keep that up indefinitely because if we do, then we're going to run out of oil completely. And obviously, if we have no reserves, then we have nothing to sell. But there's no way Biden is going to risk doing that. So he's probably done. I can't believe that they would, you know, they would go back in and with a new program to sell down the reserves. I mean, what is the emergency? Higher prices? That's not an emergency. The reason we supposedly have the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is that we don't have the oil, right? There's actually a shock. We don't, we don't have it. We're not getting it. There's an embargo or something is going on. Uh, or maybe there's something else like a, a, a hurricane or a major uh, weather-related event that knocks out our ability to supply oil. And so we, we tap into our reserve. It was never there just to keep prices from going up. You know, that's not an emergency. I mean, that's certainly a problem, but that's not why we have that reserve. And of course, if the problem is that oil prices are going up and they're too high and there's no major disaster or, or anything like that, the last thing you would want to do is sell your strategic petroleum reserves. Because what you're doing is you're interfering with the market. Because if prices are too high because of normal demand and supply imbalances, you want higher prices because higher prices will bring down demand. People will spend less. They'll, they'll cut back. 
and you'll get more supply. You'll get energy companies investing in more capacity because the prices are higher. They want to make that money. If you stop that by just tapping into the strategic petroleum reserve to uh, just manipulate prices in the short run, you short circuit those mechanisms. Consumers don't cut back because they don't have to, because you've insulated them from the rising price. Producers don't invest in, 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 in more capacity because you've taken away their reward. So you just blow through the reserve for no reason other than politics, and then we're in even worse shape because now we've done nothing to address the structural imbalance that was causing the increase in oil prices. And now we have no more strategic reserves, which means that we may have to restock those reserves and add even more demand to an undersupplied market. But the bigger point I'm, I'm making here is, you know, you know they, they've already uh, done that trick. They, they, they don't have that rabbit anymore to pull out of their hats because it's gone. So how is Biden going to keep the price of oil from, from going up? He, he's not. So inflation is going to continue to drive it higher. And that basically destroys this whole disinflation narrative. So does what's happening with the bond market. Interest rates are rising and oil prices are rising. So energy is a major cost input for the economy that needs to be passed on to consumers. But so is interest, because one thing Americans have in abundance, and that's debt. And that's businesses, too. Businesses are loaded up with debt. Everybody partaked in this debt orgy when the Fed had interest rates at zero. Everybody was told, hey, you're a fool if you don't borrow this money. Look how cheap it is. And so people levered up, businesses levered up, and now they have to pay the bills. They have to pay the interest. Well, for years, those bills were super low. And while they were low, uh, the, the benefits of those low interest rates got passed on to the customers and in the form of lower prices. But now interest rates are rising on these bonds. And if I'm an employer, I'm a business, and I borrowed a bunch of money, and now my debt is maturing and I got to refinance it, and my cost is much higher now, well, that's just like my rent going up. That's just like my wages going up or my raw material costs. It's another cost of doing business because paying interest on my debt is part of my operating expenses. I borrowed the money. I borrowed it maybe because I needed some plant or equipment or I needed to do something. And so I borrowed money and now paying interest in addition to repaying the principal is part of my costs. And I got to cover all those costs from my customers, right? The customer has to pay for all the costs of the business so the business can survive. And of course, the business has to make a profit, can't just be break even because, you know, the owner isn't operating a business to break even, then he's just wasting his time. He might as well shut his business down and go get a job. The reason you operate a business is to make a profit. So you have to charge your customer more money than it costs you to provide the service he's buying or produce the goods that he's buying. And as it costs you more to produce those goods and services, you have to raise your prices. And if you can't raise your prices, you go out of business, right? So interest rates have gone up. That's a big deal. And energy costs have gone up. All of this is going to bleed into higher uh, consumer prices. The markets still don't get this. 
right? They are not reacting to what this means. Sure, the stock market was down um, on on the week, but it, it didn't get killed. I mean, the Dow was barely down, actually, because, you know, you had oil stocks going up. The S&P was down about 1%. I think uh, the tech stocks did worse because the NASDAQ might have been down about 1.4, 1, 1. or that was the, the, the NASDAQ 100. Uh, gold was down about 1% also. The dollar was up. Again, these rising bond yields caused people to buy dollars and, and sell gold. Gold stocks down about 2% on, on the week. But the markets are not actually reacting to the reality of what's going on because they don't even understand what's going on. And I'm going to offer my explanation of what the markets don't understand on the other side of this, uh, this commercial break. So stick around. I will be right back. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Right, so I'm talking about the simultaneous rise in, in interest rates and oil prices and the market uh, refusing to accept what this means. Because so many people are still talking about this inflation. They're still talking about all the progress the Fed has made in reducing inflation. I mean, we're almost there. We got from 9% down to 3%. So, you know, just one more percent to go, right? We're 80% of the way there, whatever. And it's so just a little bit, and we're back to 2%. And then the Fed can start cutting rates. Because everybody is waiting for the Fed to cut rates. Because there's no way the economy can survive if the Fed doesn't cut rates. And I think a lot of people may understand that. They just assume that it's not going to be an issue because, of course, the Fed is going to cut rates. And they are looking at the decline in inflation. In fact, we're almost at uh, $33 trillion now in the national debt. Uh, I think we're at 30, over $32.9 uh, right now, to be exact. I mean, maybe I'll, I'll check it out uh, on the next commercial break. Maybe, who knows? Maybe we've, maybe, we've, maybe we've passed $33 trillion. Uh, but it might not be until next week or something, but it's it's going up quickly. Uh, but everybody knows that the only way that we can handle this debt is if the Fed can get interest rates back down near zero. And so everybody expects that that's what's going to happen because inflation is going to come down. But it's all predicated on the false belief that inflation can come back down to 2%, which it can't. And if you're looking at what's happening with interest rates, and oil, that's obvious. Interest rates are rising. Energy costs are rising. Insurance costs, and I'm gonna get to that in, in, a, in a minute about insurance after I finish this topic, but these, these uh, essential costs are going up. And just look at a chart. Look at a chart of bonds. Look at a chart of oil. You've got a long way to go up in oil. I mean, that chart looks beautiful. Uh, and as beautiful as the oil chart is, that's how ugly the bond chart is. Now, if you flip it around and just look at a yield chart, yeah, that looks great, right? Yields going up, although that's not a good thing if you own bonds, because if yields are going up, your bonds are going down. But what I'm focusing on now is the cost structure. 
of rising interest rates and rising energy costs and the fact that businesses now need to raise their prices. So this does not sound like an economy where there's disinflation, where you're going to get to see a big decline in inflation when you're seeing these numbers shooting back up. They are going to put a lot of pressure. So we didn't even get to 2%. We, we came down to 3% and then we turned around and we're heading back up. It's like a plane. It tried to land and then you know it missed the landing and it had to pull up and now the pilot's going right back up. That's where we're going with the CPI. The markets are not expecting this. But here is the other thing that the markets are not pricing in. The reason the markets are so expensive, the stock market, is because investors have been conditioned to believe that there's really no risk in the market. Yes, the market can fall, but it'll never stay down. And the reason is because the Fed won't let it stay down. Investors know that even if they screw up and the market tanks, and if the economy goes into recession, which could impact earnings, the Fed's going to come in and cut rates back to zero, and everything's going to go back up. So even if stocks go down, they won't stay down. Plus, you can always buy the dip. And in fact, the way you can buy the dip is when the Fed slashes interest rates down to zero, even if you own stocks and they went down, but now interest rates are at zero, you borrow money at practically nothing, and then you go out on margin and you buy more stocks. And then when the market goes back up, you've got all new profits. You're at new highs. That's what Wall Street does, right? When the market sells off and then the Fed comes to the rescue, right? The Fed's the cavalry and the uh, you know investors know, hey, if, if the Indians show up, you know we don't have to worry because the Fed cavalry is going to come rescue us. Uh, but as soon as they do that and they make that free money available, not only does that low interest rate push up asset prices, but it allows Wall Street to borrow that cheap money to buy the asset prices and that buying pushes it up. So no one's worried, right? It's almost like a risk-free trade because the Fed has got your back. And so because of that mentality, investors are willing to pay up for stocks. Doesn't matter, no price is too high. Fundamentals go out the window. I'll overpay for a stock because it's gonna keep going up. And if it goes down, well, the Fed's gonna print a bunch of money and then we'll buy more and that'll make the stock go to new highs. If the markets didn't believe that, or investors rather, if they weren't conditioned, like, like a Pavlovian dog, right? Salivating at a bell. If markets weren't expecting the Fed to bail them out, investors would not pay such high prices for stocks. It would be too risky because there would be too large, uh, you know, of a drop that they wouldn't want to endure because the Fed wouldn't be there. It's like if there's a high wire out there, let's say it's, I don't know how high a high wire is. Maybe it's 50 feet up in the air, right? If there's no net, a lot of people probably wouldn't want a chance going out on that high wire, knowing that if they fall from 50 feet, they're going to die. But if there's a big net down there and you're confident that it's that it's secure, well, then you might give it a chance because all right, maybe you make it across, but if you fall, okay, you know, the net's going to catch you. So the, the fact that there's a net, that gives you confidence to go way up there. Now, let's say there was no net. Well, maybe if the high wire was one foot above the ground, you might go on it. 
because if you fall, it's only a foot drop. You're, you're going to be okay, right? That's, that's the market. If the market was trading at a rational PE, investors would buy it because there's not a lot of downside risk. There's some, but if you're buying stocks cheap and things go bad, I mean, you're not going to get killed. I mean, you can lose a little. Maybe if you fall off of a one foot high wire, maybe you stub your toe. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you could even, you know, you could injure yourself. You get a, you get a bruise or two, but you're, you're not going to die. You're going to survive the fall. Right. But if you're paying 20, 30, 40 times earnings for stocks, and then something goes wrong, you 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 get you know you're going to die. I mean, financially, you're going to have such massive losses that you're never going to be able to recover. So, investors would not be willing to pay such high prices, but for that Fed net that's that they they believe is there to catch them, so they can't really fall. They'll just bounce off that net and come right back up, and and they're going to be fine. Well, what investors are going to find out? is that that net's not there, or maybe it, it's got a big hole in it. And the reason that net's not there anymore is because inflation is not low anymore, or at least they can't pretend that it's low anymore because the net has been inflation. That has been the reason that the Fed has done everything. The only way they were able to bail us out of the 2008 financial crisis was by creating inflation. Right, QE, that was inflation. That was their big plan. We'll create inflation. Well, they were able to do that because inflation, the way they measured it, was still below this 2% number. And it may have been a lot below it based on what was happening in the economy, but for all the inflation they created. And then, of course, they created inflation during COVID. That's how we got out of this man-made COVID mess was with more inflation. And in fact, every time there's been a problem, even before 2008, long-term capital management, uh, Y2K, uh, the, the Asian crisis in 98, um, Orange County going bankrupt, SNL crisis. I mean, you name it, anytime there's been a problem, starting with Greenspan, who really you know wrote the playbook uh, that all of his successors, Bernanke, Bernanke Yellen, uh, and, and, and Powell have been, you know, reading and, 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 and you know, playing from was anytime there's a problem, just create inflation. That's your solution. Well, when inflation is the problem, then inflation can't be the solution because you can't solve the inflation problem by creating inflation. That is the bind because if the markets start to drop again because of recession, because higher interest rates, and they're going to go higher, we get a banking crisis bigger than the one that we already had. Something is going to break, and the markets expect, okay, well, then the Fed's just going to cut rates and everything's going to be great. So they're not worried. Investors are not worried about another financial crisis because they survived the last one because the Fed saved them. Nobody is worried about anything. That's the problem. That's why people are willing to pay such high prices. Everybody believes that inflation is never coming back. That's why these 30-year bonds are still only yielding 4.2%. Everybody believes that inflation is going to be 2% for the long run. That's the break even between the tips I talked about that and regular treasuries. It's only about two and a quarter percent. That's it. That's all the inflation investors expect for the next 30 years. They don't understand 
that what we lived through for the past 10 years or more, that was the aberration. We're not going back to that anymore. We never even should have been there. But they, 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 this, they're delusional based on this. And a lot of the people, you know, young, the portfolio matters, they don't even have that long uh, of a memory of, of what things were like prior to QE because they've spent their entire career working in this environment. A lot of people, you know, in the financial services, they, they didn't start working until 2008, 9, 10, 11. So their entire career, basically, until just now, have been 0% interest rates. And so they assume we're just going to go right back to that after this little blip uh, that they still you know, think was just a one-off event that was related to the pandemic. And then everything is, is going to go back. The problem is when the next uh, disaster happens, the Fed can't save us with more inflation. I mean, they could try. It won't work. They may not try. Maybe they'll realize it doesn't work but they're not going to be able to get rates back to zero. They're not going to be able to launch another round of QE. By the way, I noticed the balance sheet was down again last week. We're almost at 8 trillion even. We're still above 8 trillion, but we've almost lost an entire trillion from the balance sheet. And that is one of the reasons that bond yields have risen to the extent that they have. But obviously, if we're going to get the balance sheet down to where it was just pre-COVID, we still have another four trillion, four and a half trillion to go to get it down to where it was before COVID. I mean, it's still too big, uh, but at least get rid of the COVID stimulus. But imagine where bond yields would be at that point if they're where they are now and we've only gotten rid of a trillion if we have to get rid of another three trillion. And by the way, the budget deficits, again, are much bigger now than they were a year ago. So it's not just the Fed that has to sell a lot more bonds. It's the U.S. government that has to sell a lot more bonds. And a lot of our creditors have bonds that they want to sell too, U.S. government bonds that they don't want anymore. Uh, so the impact that we're going to see on interest rates is about to go exponential. Again, people are underestimating just how big this bond market collapse is going to be and the impact it's going to have on the economy and the markets. But if the Fed tries to do what it's done so many times in the past, it will blow up the dollar. If we have to slash rates and go back to QE with the balance sheet where it is, with inflation so much higher than 2% and on the rise, there's no doubt in my mind that when this next crisis hits the banking system or the, the economy, the markets, it will be with inflation going up. It's not going to be with inflation coming down. We've already gone through that period. And now we're at the period where inflation is rising. So the Fed is going to have to deliberately create more inflation when high inflation is the problem. And that makes it an even bigger problem. And then when the bottom drops out of the dollar and then prices really take off, then everything the Fed is doing is backfiring uh, on the markets. And if the markets do manage a rally, it will only be in nominal terms because the dollar will be getting killed. Gold prices will be going through the roof. So if you try to measure U.S. stock prices in terms of another currency or more precisely in terms of real money, in terms of gold, you will be seeing an unprecedented collapse in uh, stock prices. I mean, you'll have to go back to the, to, the, to the crash in 1929 because during that period of time from 1929 to 1932, in terms of gold, 
the, the stock market, I think, lost 80 to 90% of its value in terms of gold. Uh, and in fact, in terms of dollars too, because the dollar was backed by gold back then. And it had a, a loss of a similar magnitude in terms of gold, but not dollars, because we went off the gold standard. But we had that kind of huge decline in the, in, in the gold price of stocks between 1966 and uh, 1982. During both of those time periods, the Dow went from 20 ounces of gold to one ounce of gold. That is a massive decline. And that is the same type of decline that we're going to get this time around. And imagine that. Imagine the Dow being worth uh, one ounce of gold. Because, you know, where is the Dow right now? What, 35,000, 36,000? Let me get the, I forget the exact price. Let me, let me look at it. Because um, gold, we know, is about 1,920. So it's not quite 2,000. And the Dow is not, it's 34,000 and change. But in order for the Dow and gold to be the same price, the way they were in 1932 and 1982, right? Because in 1932 and 1982, one ounce, the, the Dow was about 20 and an ounce of gold was 20. And in 1982, the Dow was about 800 and gold was about 800, right? Pretty close. So if these two are going to meet, where is it going to be? I mean, what if it? What if they meet at at where Dow is right now, 30, 34, 35,000? That means gold has to be thirty-five thousand dollars an ounce, right? It, it's it's only two thousand dollars an ounce. Now maybe they meet at twenty thousand, Dow twenty thousand, gold twenty thousand. That's still a huge drop in the Dow, and it's a big drop in gold. But what if gold? What if the the Dow goes up? What if there's so much inflation that the Dow goes to hundred thousand? Well, that's not going to mean much if gold is also hundred thousand dollars an ounce. That's what you have to understand, that a nominal gain can mean nothing if it's eviscerated uh, by a real loss. And you can see the magnitude of the real loss by measuring prices in real money, gold, as opposed to fake money. And anyway, we got one more commercial. We'll be right back. So during the break, I did take a look at the national debt clock, and it's not quite $33 trillion yet. It's still $32.91 trillion. So We'll have to talk about a $33 trillion national debt on a future podcast. But another topic that I wanted to discuss, which also relates to inflation, but also is going to touch on the housing market, and that's what's going on in the insurance market. I was reading the articles, and this, again, was something that I had been forecasting you know, years ago on this podcast. I, I, I warned about this, and now, of course, it's happening. But insurance companies are in a lot of trouble. They have a lot of losses too. You know, just like these banks uh, lost a lot of money because they owned uh, these long-term bonds. Uh, well, insurance companies bought the same bonds, right? They were big buyers of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And now they own these bonds and they're underwater. And what happens when a house is underwater because it got flooded out and now they got to pay a claim? Well, they got to come up with the money. Well, how do they get the money? Well, they got to sell some of the assets because they don't just sit in cash. They were trying to earn a yield. That's part of how insurance companies make money is everybody gives them cash, right? When they pay their premiums. And then the insurance company invests the money to generate a return. And a lot of those returns that they generate is where they get the money to pay the claim. Now, how did they generate returns in an era of artificially low interest rates? It was very hard. 
because they had to take a lot of risk in order to generate return because they couldn't just buy uh, you know, safe bonds at a high yield. They had to buy junk bonds or they had to go and buy long-term bonds. They couldn't just put money in a, in a you know, money market or you know, CDs and stuff like that or you know, short-term treasury bills. Uh, so they, they had to take a lot of risk. And now that's come back to bite them. But what's also happening is there have been a lot of major weather events. Look at, you know, we just had the huge fires in Hawaii, but we had big fires uh, in California. Uh, I don't know how much hurricane we just had, you know, a hurricane that went through uh, 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 the uh, up in the Florida panhandle up through Georgia. There's another hurricane now that's that's going by us in the Atlantic. It looks like it's going to miss everybody, but you never know. And there's a few more that are forming, but there's all these natural disasters. And so that means that people are going to be filing claims with the insurance companies. Well, the insurance companies are having a hard time. Um you know, meeting these obligations. So what do they got to do? Well, one thing they've got to do is raise their premiums. I've been talking about this. You have an insurance policy. You got homeowner's insurance. Your insurance is going to be a lot more expensive in the future because the insurance companies need to cash. They need to cover not only what they're losing on all these claims, but what they've lost on their portfolios. Their investment losses have to be made up by policyholders. I mean, they have no other way to get the money they have to charge their customers. The customers are the people who buy insurance. So again, of course, a lot of businesses might have insurance too, and their insurance rates are going to go up, and that's another cost uh, that they're going to be confronted with. But what insurance companies are doing in particular is they're not just raising premiums. They're canceling the policies altogether. They're not writing the coverage. If you live in an area that is prone to uh, these natural disasters, and there are a lot of people who have homes in flood zones, in hurricane zones, in areas that have uh, forest fires, and they've been able to get insurance. And that's one of the reasons that they've built in these areas is because they could get insurance. Because if they couldn't get insurance, they probably wouldn't have built, especially if they had a mortgage. Because a bank is not going to loan you money to buy a house if you can't insure it against fire or flood or something, because if it burns down, how are you going to pay back the mortgage? You can't. And all that's left is the land, which is you know a fraction of the value of what the whole house used to be. But if people can't get insurance policies, uh, that is a whole new ball game in, in the real estate market because the prices for homes that are uninsurable are going to crash because you can't sell them because the buyer can't get insurance. So the price has to fall to a point where you don't care about the insurance anymore because you didn't pay that much for the property. And, you know, that's also part of the problem with these government subsidized insurance, because the government has subsidized people to build and buy in flood zones, you know, with federal flood insurance. And so people have built in areas that in a free market they wouldn't have built in, or maybe only very rich people would have built there because they can afford uh, to rebuild their home and they don't need insurance. They, they can self-insure. But because of government and the moral hazard where they got subsidized uh, artificially low rates, well, then it made sense to build in flood zones because of the government subsidy where the taxpayer was on the hook. But this is going to start moving through uh, the housing market as a lot of people can't get insurance at all. And, and that means they can't buy unless they're a cash buyer. And there's not that many Americans that are cash buyers. And I already talked about on this program uh, what's been happening, because I know my own insurance policy. I haven't looked at it recently to see the most recent hike, 
but it had doubled before on my property in Connecticut because the replacement cost had doubled. Now, the market value of the house hadn't doubled at all, not even close, but the construction cost had. So if my house burned down in a fire and I had to rebuild it, the cost to do that would be much greater than it would cost me to just buy a different house, right? Because the market isn't even at replacement costs. But what has driven the replacement costs so high is the raw material costs and the, uh, the labor costs. And if you have to take out a loan, of course, to fund all that, uh, well, then that's going to cost you even more money as well. Um, uh, so all that is impacting the economy. It's impacting the housing market. But it is also showing you the downside of the low interest rate policy, the impact it is having on the insurance companies as they have to unravel this mess, right? Everything was fine until interest rates went up, but it was inevitable that they were going to go up. They couldn't stay low forever, but for some reason, so many people on Wall Street just assumed that that was going to be the case. And they, in fact, still assume it because, again, they think that what we're seeing now is temporary. They have no idea that we're just the beginning of a long-term trend uh, that's going to see interest rates rising for, for years and years and years, maybe decades. That doesn't mean there won't be some cuts along the way, uh, but the trend is going to be higher. And, and long-term yields are going to keep moving up, even if the Fed temporarily lowers shorter-term yields, the yield curve is going to steep it. I mean, right now it's still inverted. It hasn't even flattened yet. It's going to flatten out and then normalize, where it's going to cost more money to borrow for 30 years than for 30 days. It should, because you have a lot more risk. It makes no sense that long-term interest rates are lower than short-term interest rates. It's only because nobody thinks these long-term, these short-term interest rates, rather, are permanent. Everybody expects the Fed to slash short-term interest rates, and so they think they're doing a smart thing by locking in 4% for 30 years. They're doing a dumb thing for, by locking in 4% for 30 years. They should just stay on the short end and, and take the 5.5%, and even, even if the Fed ends up cutting a little bit, it's going to be in an inflationary environment that's going to destroy those, those long-term bonds. But People don't get it, just like you know they thought that real estate prices would never fall. That was the common refrain. I got that argument from a lot of people in 2004 and five and six when I was talking about a potential housing collapse and a mortgage crisis. They would always say that's impossible because real estate prices will never go down. Uh, it's never happened before. It never will. Uh, well, people have the same mentality. Hey, interest rates are never you know going to go up. I mean, they only briefly. But the Fed is going to be able to keep them uh, anchored down at, 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 at a low rate. And so they didn't have to worry. I always worried and knew that the day would come when the piper had to be paid. And now that interest rates are normalizing, they're still not normal. They're still too low. They're in the process of correcting. We've still got a ways to go. But as that's happening, you're seeing the problems, right? Warren Buffett. When the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. Well, the insurance companies, right? Warren Buffett owns a lot of insurance companies, right? Just like the banks, they are a mess based on their investments. See, anything that was tied 
any asset type business, any leverage investment business that was buying overpriced bonds, buying overpriced mortgages is in a lot of trouble now because they own this crap. Now, for a while, they could pretend it wasn't a problem because as long as the Fed was able to keep interest rates lower than these bond yields, if you were a bank or an insurance company, whatever, and your cost of money was 1% and you could invest that money at 3%, well, you made positive too. You still made money. But when interest rates are at five and you're locked in at three, now you're at negative two. You are losing a fortune. And, and that is what's happening. And we've barely uh, seen this, the repercussions. Look at what happened again during the week. More outflows out of banks uh, into uh, money markets. Uh, and again, when, when people take their money out of the bank, they're taking it out of the private sector. That's money that the bank can't loan a business. And when they put it in a money market, they're sending it to the government. Because what are the money markets doing with that money? They are buying treasuries. This is what they call crowding out. You have these huge budget deficits that are crowding out private sector borrowing. Because money loaned to the government is money that can't be loaned to the private sector. You can't loan out the same money twice. It's one or the other. So if the government's going to borrow the money, then somebody else misses out. And of course, the government is the best credit risk. So that's where people are going, especially now because they can't put their money in the banks because the banks can't compete with the government. The government can pay five and a quarter, five and a half. The banks can't because they buried their money in long-term government bonds. So they're continuing to see this massive outflow of deposits and it's not going to stop. And that's why these banks have to keep on going to the Fed window and presenting that collateral because when customers are withdrawing their money to deposit it into a money market, the bank has to sell their treasuries. But if they sell the treasuries, they're going to get a loss. So what do they do? They take the treasury to the Fed and the Fed gives them par. And now they now they take that money and give it to the depositor who goes and deposits it in the money market and sends the money right to the U.S. government. But this merry-go-round is going to is going to stop. You know, uh, it's amazing to me that the Fed is still able to shrink its balance sheet while it's doing this. I don't even know how it's you know it, it's putting off that that feat of magic, but somehow it's doing it. Right, it's expanding its balance sheet by taking all that underwater paper onto its own books at face value, but then somehow its balance sheet is still shrinking anyway. But you know, this is that's not going to keep up. At some point, you're going to start to see. Uh, the balance sheet moving back the other way because more and more money is going to be pulled out of these banks and, uh, and and deposited in the money markets, especially with the next you know big move up. You know we have more rate hikes supposedly coming, uh, and so that's just going to uh, drive this trend even even farther. But I want to finish up today's podcast by talking about the Labor Day holiday that we all just celebrated. Uh, because to me, right, what's lost in, in Labor Day is what makes labor possible. It's the employer. It's the entrepreneur. They're the unsung heroes of the American economy. There is no Entrepreneur Day. Um, there's just a Labor Day. Even though business owners in general work a lot harder than any of their employees, it's not like the workers are the only ones that labor. Sometimes it's the boss who labors the most. In many cases, and certainly 
in the early days. I remember when I started my business, my brokerage business, I was the first person to show up every morning and I was the last person to leave. Nobody worked harder at my business than I did. Now, I don't expect my workers to work as hard as I did because it was my business. They just had a job. I don't expect them to knock their brains out for a job. Right? When, when you take a job, you're going to work, you're going to get paid, but you don't have to go above and beyond. I was working like 16 hour days. I would never expect an employee to work 16 hours a day. I mean, that's ridiculous, but that's how many hours a day I worked because I wasn't an employee. I was the employer. And that is the hardest job to have. Now, people, sometimes they look at once the employer is really successful, he's built a big business. Okay, he or she maybe doesn't have to work as hard. But you don't build that business up without working your butt off. And there is no holiday to recognize that. We're just recognize the guy that has a job, right? the guy that collects the paychecks. It's a lot harder to create a job than take one. Right. If you want a job, just go look in the help wanted and, and pick one. Right. As long as you're qualified, you can get a job. Try starting a job. Right? Not that many people can do that. People can people people can accept a job that's offered to them. It's a lot different to create a job, not just create your own job, but create jobs for other people. That's what employers do. And it is not easy to create jobs. What people forget is that when you own a business, you're the last person to get paid. And you might not get paid at all. And in fact, when I started my business, it took a while before I got my first paycheck. Because when you run the business, you only get what's left over if there's anything left over. There may not be. There may be losses that you have to subsidize, which means you work 16 hours a day and you don't even make any money. You might have to spend money in addition to working 16 hours a day. The workers get paid no matter what. You can't tell your, your, your employees, if you're a boss, you can't tell your workers, you know, I had a bad week. I'm sorry. I, I just I can't pay you this week. Time, you know, let, let, let's see what happens next week. No, that's not the deal. The deal you make with your workers is they get paid no matter what. And if you lose money, well, you find a way to get it. You borrow it. You mortgage your house. You do what you need to do. You make payroll. Right? That's what people don't get. It's easy to sign the back of a paycheck. It's very difficult to sign the front. That's what the entrepreneur does. He makes it possible for people to have jobs. Now, yes, the reward is not as big. If you just accept a job, you probably won't make as much money as the guy who's created your job and who is employing you. But that guy or gal is taking a tremendous risk. They might not make anything at all. You've got a sure thing when you've got a paycheck. And that's what workers like about a paycheck. It's steady. It's reliable. You know you're going to get paid. Rain or shine, you're going to get your paycheck. And so you can budget. You know what you know. You, you can have rent. You can have other expenses that you can commit to because you have this steady, dependable paycheck. But there's a trade-off. You get that steady, dependable paycheck, and there's a limit to how much you're going to get paid. Because when you're a worker, your cost, your cost of doing business. Right? You're not a business owner. You don't have unlimited profit potential if you're just collecting a wage. You're, you're an expense. You're a line item you know, in the, in the, in the uh, balance sheet. But what the entrepreneur gets is he doesn't have a steady, reliable income. He may have no income. He may have losses, but he has unlimited potential. 
most people can't take that gamble. They don't want to take that gamble. They're afraid to take that gamble. And you know what? They'll probably lose. It, it's very difficult to do this kind of stuff. Labor, labor is a factor of production. It's one factor. You got land and you got capital. What the entrepreneur has to do is combine these factors of production in a way that generates a profit. He's got to put labor and capital together. Let's say I, I got a farm. Right? So the, the, the land part is the, the farm that I own, the farmland. Maybe I own it. Maybe I rented it from somebody and I'm going to farm it. I got to hire some farmers, but I got to give them equipment. Right? I, if I want them to be productive, I, gotta, I, I need tractors. Right? I have to take a farmer and put them on top of a tractor. Right? That tractor makes that farmer far more productive than he would be all by himself. Well, where'd that tractor come from? <laughs> I, had to, I had to borrow the money to buy it, or I had to earn the money to buy it. Right? That's the capital uh, that is being uh, utilized by the worker. By himself, the worker is nothing. Yeah, I mean, he can work with his hands, but if the farmer had no modern-day farm equipment, how much could he possibly earn? Like the same thing with home building. If, if people that work building homes, if they didn't have all the equipment, if they had to build them by hand, you know, how much could they possibly earn? Not much, because it would take forever to build a house if you only had your hands. I mean, imagine that. What if you didn't even have a hammer? I mean, how you trying to put the nails in with rocks? I mean, I, I mean, capital is what makes labor productive. Well, capital comes from the entrepreneur, comes from businessmen and in, in, in inventors and all this. The workers don't create their own capital. They get to benefit from capital that other people created and allow them to use and then pay them more when they're able to use it than they would have earned if the capital didn't exist. And, you know, people, you know, I, I tweeted out something like this and I think someone said, well, you know, it's, it's not, it's labor. It's not, you know, just the worker, you know, everybody labors. No, it is about the worker. The, the whole holiday was started by labor unions. That's where it came from. It was part of the progressive era, uh, 1880s, 1890s. Uh, there was a big movement. Uh, to make a, a Labor Day holiday. In fact, the first Labor Day, and I looked this up, it's not like I you know, just knew it by heart. So I, I looked it up before uh, the podcast, but the first Labor Day was celebrated in 1882 in New York City. And it happened to be on September 5th. And then after New York City recognized Labor Day, you know, a lot of other you know, cities and states began enacting the holiday on their own. But in um, 1894, Grover Cleveland, who I've talked about as one of my favorite presidents, although this particular act, you know, you know, is no big, you know, not not one of the reasons I liked him. Um, not that you know we can't have a Labor Day. Uh, I just think we need to put it in perspective. But um, he signed it into law in 1894 and made Labor Day officially the first Monday of September of every year. So of course, labor could have the three-day weekend, right? That's the idea. Like we always want Labor Day to fall on a Monday so labor can have an extra day off. But you know who doesn't take Labor Day off in many cases? The boss, <laughs> he's gotta work. In fact, when you own your own business, you may not have any time off. You work weekends. The business is all you think about. Even when you're you know, at home, you're at work. When you take a vacation, you're working. You know, when you're running a business, it never stops. It, it really is a full-time job in that it's 24-7. When you're collecting a paycheck, you can work nine to five. You can really leave 
the office at the office and go home and enjoy yourself and not have to worry about the problems that your boss has to worry about. You can take a vacation and not even think about the office. Right? I, when I used to take vacations early on, I mean, it was like, I mean, I was doing work the whole time. I mean, I, I was always working on things because I had to do it, you know, because it was my business. And so, yeah, I would, I would be out of town on vacation, but I'd still be working in my hotel room. You know, I'd, you know, I'd have my uh, phone with me or, you know, whatever. I'd do emails. Um, so there, there is a, a big difference. But the reason, again, that everybody wants to talk about labor is because that's where most people fall within labor. There are a lot more employees than employers. And so if you're a politician, who do you want to make happy? The employees, because that's where the votes are, right? It's like Willie Sutton. Why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is. Well, why do you appease the, the laborer, the worker? Because that's where the votes are. If you're counting votes, well, then you want to appeal to workers and talk about, oh, you guys make such a great contribution. Yes, we couldn't have an economy without the workers, right? Everybody overestimates the contribution made by the worker because you can see them working, right? They're out there working. And you just assume that the boss is just sitting back and collecting all this money. Because if you've never been a boss, you have no idea how hard they work. You think that they just kick back and you do all the work and, and they just reap all the rewards. That's not how it works. And I don't like celebrating labor above capital, above the entrepreneur, because you know that falls into the socialist mindset that the reason we have a strong economy is because we have all these people working. No, it's the strong economy that creates all these good jobs. It's not the other way around. And yes, if we didn't have capitalism, we'd still have a lot of people working. They just wouldn't have much to show for it because they wouldn't be very productive. So they'd be working longer hours, but have a lower standard of living because all the things that we take for granted were not made possible by the workers. They were made possible by the employers who gave them jobs and who built the businesses and created the capital that raised all the productivity and everybody's living standards. So instead of just celebrating Labor Day, we need to also celebrate and honor uh, the employers, the entrepreneurs uh, that make those jobs possible. Anyway, that's it for today's uh, podcast. Uh, uh, have a great weekend, everybody, and I'll be back again uh, next week. 